That's it makes Crazy. me want to cry. I can only imagine. Yeah. Sharks can actually detect when a hurricane is coming. And it's gonna look kind of silly because I'm gonna put this little turtle in a burrito wrap. Here now is Chief Meteorologist Tom Sorrells with Talk to Tom, sponsored by Greenway Dodge. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talk to Tom. I'm Chief Meteorologist Tom Sorrells, and this is my favorite part of the day, of the year, of the week. This podcast, thank you for being here. We recently chatted with a shark expert about the great white sharks migrating up and down along the Florida coast. During that conversation, they told me they would be going on a research expedition. Well, now they're back and we're going to find out a little bit about what they've learned and how it's impacting people hanging out along our coast, what the sharks are up to and how they do their research. But before we get to going on that, I want to do what we do every week. I'm going to start to answer some of your weather questions. If you would like to get in on the conversation, just head over to clickorlando.com forward slash talk to Tom and submit your question. Today, we're going to start with Zoe. Hey, Zoe. I was wondering, when did people first start tracking and predicting the weather? Like what year? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Zoe, that's kind of a, an open-ended question. Um, as far as tracking the weather, I'm sure that prehistoric man tried it, you know, tried to figure out what was going on, when it was going to rain, when it would not, when the clouds came up and what was up with that lightning stuff. But as far as real-time records go, much of it started either in Europe or in Asia. And I'm not sure about the Asian history, how far back they were tracking weather. But I know in Europe, um, let's see, Galileo invented his type of thermometer sometime in the late 1500s and then in Italy um, the Medici family the people who basically invented banking as we know it and uh, lived outside of Florence Italy they did records for weather because of business concerns trying to figure out what was going on so that was in the early 1600s and then in America I know for sure uh, the first guy who ever started doing daily weather recording was, I want to say 1774, before the Revolutionary War. His last name was Jeffers, and that's, he was born on February 5th, which is why we have National Weather Persons Day on February 5th. So here in this country, I know we've been keeping records and trying to track and forecast in 1774, over in Europe since the late 1500s or 1600s, and modern meteorology, when we finally had enough thermometers, weather stations, mostly military installations. Modern meteorology started around 1880. So if you see records, temperature records, daytime highs, record overnight lows, most of those don't date back prior to 1880 or so, because that's about the time we started for real. And then of course, um, even more modern weather technology started after the invention and the advent of modeling and numerical weather prediction after about World War II. They figured it out that you could mathematically plot the atmosphere. And that didn't really work well until computer speed caught up and could run the models faster than we could figure them out. So there you go. I hope that answered your question. It dates back all the way to the 1500s and the late 1700s here in America. There you go. Uh, okay. Oh, Zoe has another question. Go, Zoe. Question number two, fire. How are clouds formed? Oh. That's a little bit more concise answer. Uh, basically, clouds form when the atmosphere runs out of room for the moisture or the moisture is condensed. You have water vapor, like when you fill up um, your dog bowl, 
and the dog doesn't drink the water, but you come back and it's lower, it evaporated, or you fill up your swimming pool here in central Florida, and it's a hot, hot day, or it's a cold, cold night, and you see steam coming off your pool, it's evaporating into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere takes on um, the gaseous form of water, it takes on the water vapor. So you have water vapor in the atmosphere, and then you have something that triggers it to condense. Either it lifts high enough that it cools and starts to come together, or it the wind gets pushed over a mountain range, and as it goes up, it cools, and the droplets begin to form out of the water vapor. So you get a cloud to form from water vapor when it cools. And sometimes we have clouds in contact with the ground, like fog. If you've been out in the fog lately, that was like walking through a cloud. Fog is basically a cloud that forms in contact with the ground. So that's what happens. Water vapor condensing is how a cloud is formed. All right, let's talk about whatever Dr. John Harris wants to talk about. Go, John, go. You know, I've noticed the weather's been awful uh, rainy recently, and I don't recall that. I've been <laughs> here in Orlando and Florida for 30, 35 years, and uh, I'm just wondering why it's raining so much recently. Ah, okay, Dr. John. I don't know what kind of doctor you are, Dr. John Harris, but thank you for your question. It depends on where you are as to what's triggering all your big rain. I got to wonder where you are and, and what you mean by that. You said here in Orlando and uh, here in Orlando, we are in the middle of what is a um, an El Nino winter. And so our El Nino winters tend to be a little stormier. You don't run a traditional dry season through the El Nino winter. What ends up happening is storms that normally Colorado wave cyclones that would form in the Southwest and go up into the Ohio Valley, instead of going that way during an Nino winter, a lot of those tend to trek right across, being driven by the subtropical jet right in to the Gulf of Mexico and right into our backyard. So coming up through the winter, we're going to have periods or a run, if you will, of storms that come through here, some of which can be strong to severe and produce not only a lot of rain, but also some damaging weather. Like uh, if you think back through time, back to the 1990s, when we had the Kissimmee tornado outbreak, that was an El Nino winter. When we had the Groundhog Day tornadoes, that was an El Nino winter. So it does this great during hurricane season. The El Nino flow with the winds coming from the west aloft, shears off a whole lot of the hurricanes, turns them away from the southeast coast. But during the winter, it pushes storms that otherwise would drift to the north straight across the Gulf. And we end up with more stormy conditions and more rain and what we would refer to as a wet atmospheric time here in Central Florida. So I think that's probably what you're noticing is that we're having more storminess or more rain chances through what should be our dry season. Normally in the dry season, we go for weeks at a time without any rain at all. And so far in 23 and 24, that has not been the case. We'll probably come out of this sometime in March or April. Uh, although I kind of hope the El Nino hangs on for at least one more summer. I'd love to have a calm, non-Florida involved hurricane season next season. All right, next question comes to us from our friend, Mark. How far is out of space? Okay, Mark, how far is out of space? Um, uh, outer space, it depends on what you mean by outer space. My guess is you might mean deep space. You might. I don't know. Since I wasn't there to ask you a follow-up question. But um, near space is about, you know, 50 miles up. But outer space, when you hit what is called the Kármán zone, the true separation between our atmosphere and space, scientists have kind of put a 62 
to 60, depending on where you are, mile barrier called the Kármán line. So if you launch into space and you get into outer space, you're outside of the Earth's atmosphere totally. And about 60 miles up, 100 kilometers, about 60 miles up, puts you into outer space. If you're talking about deep space, that's the moon. Past the moon becomes deep space. But outer space, away from our atmosphere and its influences, normally about 60 to 62 miles up becomes outer space. And the term deep space is anywhere past the moon. And then it goes on to whatever, 93 billion, 93 trillion miles, I don't know, across whatever's out there. That's your deep space. So great question, though. How far is outer space? About 60 to 62 miles up. All right, that's going to wrap up the question part. Thank you guys so much for asking the questions. You can always join our conversation here on Talk to Tom by going to clickorlando.com forward slash talk to Tom. I'd love to know whatever you want to know. Stick around. We're going to get some questions answered about great white sharks migrating along our coast. Stay with us. Hi there. Welcome back to Talk to Tom. I'm Chief Meteorologist Tom Sorrells. Today, we're going to be talking about the incredible world of shark migration. I know a lot of you are shark obsessed. So am I. Several of them have been spotted along the Florida coast. And now we're going to be talking to one of the people responsible for tracking and studying these sharks as they migrate south for the winter. Thanks for sticking with us. All right. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Harley Newton. Dr. Newton has been with us before. She is the ocean chief scientist and veterinarian um, for OSEARCH. Uh, we've had OSEARCH on before, and it's just fascinating to me. As I told you, I'm fascinated by sharks. I can't get enough of them. And the whole migration thing really is interesting because they come so very close to our shores. And a lot of people have a chance to uh, either try to avoid them or have an encounter with them as they migrate up and down the coast. The last time we talked, you guys were talking about... Uh, being with your, your shark study and now you're back. Since then, we've had even more sharks pinging right off of our coast. And that includes a 1,400 pounder. Its name is Breton. Is that right? Breton. Breton. Okay, tell me about Breton. It's a 1,400 pound shark and it got close, right? Yeah, so uh, Breton is an adult male uh, white shark or great white shark, which most people um, know them more commonly as. Mm -hmm. We tagged and released him in 2020. Uh, when he was actually up north in Atlantic Canada, um, he's named um, for an island there, or a region up there, uh, Cape Breton. Oh, and so he's been tagged for how many years now? Three? Did you say? Two years since, uh, since 2020. Okay, so does he keep growing? You say he's like a 1,400-pound shark. Was he a 1,400-pounder when you tagged him? He, or your estimate? He was a 1,400-pounder. Um, yeah, so most of our weights are, are by estimate, and it's based on how long they are. Um, and yes, so he's been growing since uh, we caught him. I'm sure he's uh, longer than that and weighs uh, considerably more now. Okay, just because he pings doesn't mean you see him though, right? You just know he's out there because of his tracker. Correct, yeah. yeah. So uh, our sharks, we use what's called a um, fin-mounted spot tag, smart position mm -hmm. or temperature tag. It's on the tip of the fin. So basically all that has to come up um, above the surface is the fin. And when that happens for um, a the right amount period of time, um, we can pick them up with the satellite network. And that's how we um, know where they are. That's awesome. Okay, so what should people know about these great whites coming closer to our coast? 
Well, I, really what you should know is that they always have. Uh, this is part of a normal seasonal migration. They spend their summers up north um, foraging and feeding, and then they spend their winters in what we call the overwintering area, which extends from uh, North Carolina all the way around the coast of Florida and into the Gulf of Mexico. This is part of a normal uh, part of their life history, um, and it's how they've spent all of their uh, winters probably since the beginning of time. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's so cool. All right. Normally, when I was a child, we'd think about great white sharks being um, in Australia or like on Jaws in the movie. I think that's what really you know, got everyone's attention on the great white sharks back in the 70s was Jaws. And it was a cold water shark, we thought. And it was mostly up north or in Australia. But that's not so, is it? Where, where are they mostly populated? Is it evenly spread around the globe? Yeah, so they're actually a temperate water shark. So they do like cooler waters, but certainly not cold, although they can tolerate pretty cold uh, temperatures, actually. There's a, there are nine populations of white sharks around the world, and they're really in all of the different um, oceans, um, yeah. including Pacific, Atlantic, um, North and South, um, and obviously Australia, South Africa, that's where they're best known and, and probably best studied. The uh, Western North Atlantic population, which OSEARCH has been working on uh, since 2012, uh, is was uh, less well studied until recently. Okay, well, talk to me about when you guys actually started. For those of, those who do not know, when did your research start? So that research started in 2012 in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Um, and 2012-2013, um, we tagged and released uh, five animals um, that really became the basis of all the research going forward. Then OSEARCH um, went away, um, did research and helped some researchers elsewhere, and then came back and started the research again in 2016. Because these animals had satellite tags, it meant that there were lots of tracks um, that we could follow and really start to hone in on what areas were important to these animals so that we could start that research again um, and pick up where we left off. Okay, has it come to an end now or is it still ongoing? It's still ongoing. Um, our goal is to tag and release 100 white sharks of four different age classes um, all along the coast and really reveal the entire life history of the white shark in the Western North Atlantic. Uh, at this point, we have 92 animals wow, that's and we're looking for those last eight. And those last <laughs> eight are very specific um, in that what we really need at this point are adult animals animals that are in a reproductive life stage. So we can learn a little more about sort of where and when and how these animals reproduce. Well, how are you gonna find them? How do you find those eight? What do you, it's not like you can take out an ad on, you know, Craigslist. What do you do? It, it's extremely difficult, uh, but we, you know, we use what we've learned um, since starting this study about where the animals are, what they like to feed on. We have an incredible master fisherman who looks at all the different aspects of oceanography um, and water temperatures and really picks the places where we want to go. Um, but ultimately, um, a little bit of it comes down to just fate. Um, weather is always a challenge, particularly when we're working in the yeah. overwintering period. And, uh, you know, it really is just about having the right day on the water. Okay, so talk to me about when you started this, this whole project. 10, 12 years ago, what were you hoping to learn that you didn't know? Really, we knew so little. And, and it really is just that entire life history piece. We wanted to know what were the critical habitats. We wanted to know everything about them from the time they're born to the time they die. What prey species are important to them? What threats do they face? You know, everything that you need 
to put together in order to form smart conservation and smart conservation policies around those animals. Okay, what have you learned? What kind of answers have you found? Have you found answers to those questions? Certainly, the um, migration was the big piece, which you've invited me here to speak about today. Mm -hmm. um, understanding sort of where they are and when they're there. Um, we're still trying to work through what the triggers are, like what it is that tells them that it's time to leave and move on. Um, we're learning a lot more um, about their nutrition. We're learning a lot more about their health. We're learning a lot more about what prey um, they're really interested in in different times of year. Um, so we've been able to put together some big pieces of this puzzle. Okay, what are you going to do with what you have learned? What, what are you going to do next? What, what's up with that? What do, you, what do you do with it? With the migration and so with the sharks in general? Sure, so there's really two aspects of OSEARCH's future. Um, and number one of them is still here in Florida. We're going to be opening our global headquarters in Jacksonville, associated with Jacksonville University, and that's going oh. to facilitate us continuing to work in the region. Uh, for many, many years to come. We actually left on our last expedition um, from a brand new dock uh, that was uh, funded by the city of Jacksonville and nice. um, are going to be working here for many years to come. And that's because even with 100 animals, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that we had. And I think reproduction is going to be one of those pieces where we really need those adults. Uh, the other part of this is, you know, the goal of OSEARCH is to really help um, shark scientists around the world um, do the type of innovative research and do that with the unique research platform that we offer, which is the MVO Search. Uh, it's a specialized um, research vessel that has a hydraulic lift that can pick up really large animals and give scientists full access to completely study the animals. And at this point, um, our, our goal is to move on to another population that's in critical need, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, you mean population of sharks in the Mediterranean or population of another species? So uh, the Mediterranean white shark population in particular, mm -hmm. but OSEARCH always facilitates kind of uh, holistic research. So uh, <clears throat> and for most of our studies, uh, we do study pretty much any shark species that are of interest in the region. So for sure that research will involve more than just white sharks. Okay, do you get to go over there yourself? You get to go to the Mediterranean, Italy, Sorrento... Positone, you get to go? Yep, no, I'm, I'm going to get to go. Um, you know, the first the first stage of our um, research actually should be starting uh, this coming summer. It's going to be in the eastern North Atlantic, just outside of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's going to focus on um, Spain, France, and Ireland. Uh, do you guys need a broadcast meteorologist? I'm asking for a friend. No? You don't, sure. I, I could, could tag along. could use help with the weather for sure and weather prediction. Absolutely. Uh, I wish. I do love that part of the world. You're going to dig it the most. All right. I, I could talk to you forever. I'm fascinated by the sharks. I'm fascinated by the work that OSEARCH does. And I love it, love it, love it. Uh, where can people learn more if they want to find out more about your organization? They can go to our website, which is osearch.org, or you can download our free phone app, which actually has our tracker, and you can track our sharks in real time right on your phone. Yep, I've seen it before. It's good stuff. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Harley Newton. Thank you for being with us again on Talk to Tom. Once you do your Italy trip, I'd love to have you guys back on. I'd love for you to, to tell us what you did over there and, and uh, how much you like the soup and the pasta, because you're going to dig it, I promise you. Thank you, Dr. Newton. I appreciate your time. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Hey, you can join the conversation as well. Just go to clickorlando.com forward slash talk to Tom. We'd love to know what you want to know. You can download this podcast from wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can watch it right here on News 6 Plus. Just download the app for your smart TV, and please keep watching. I'll see you soon. Bye.